0: Welcome to this podcast from the Religion Media Centre, the only podcast to sit firmly in the space where religion and the media collide. We aim to ease that relationship, strengthen links that already exist, and help build new ones through chat, reflection, and comment. Thanks for listening.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Religion Media Centre briefing on the day after the Church of England's General Synod concluded its business for February. Uh, People have returned to their day jobs. Um, Some of them have gone to Parisian art galleries, some of them have come up north to the new wine um, uh, meeting. But I'm really delighted that um, several have agreed to join us today to reflect on the last few days. Um, and on what this session of Synod delivered. We have some um, new people on here today, I'm very pleased especially um, to welcome them. Um, I wonder, um, before we go to some of the, um, I suppose, most notorious items that were discussed, might be one way of putting it, um, by which I mean um, safeguarding and the living in love and faith process, I wonder if you could just reflect a little bit on the other things that were talked of at Synod and and, um, what's the, tone of this synod was there was an awful lot of talk beforehand about the need for kinder conversation kinder way of doing business and i wonder if any of you have sort of detected that um inside the the assembly hall i want to go to paul waddell first, a, a lay member from southwark um, and paul i just wonder if you've got one or two general observations either about the content of the sessions or about the, the process of, of the synod this time around
2: yeah thanks Rosie. Um there was a, a notable change in tone. Um I think some of the more controversial issues there's there's been a bit of a sort of wearing down of people over time. I think we're at a point now where we want to start seeing what a solution looks like to some of the big issues. And you really felt that from sort of certain both sides of the debate. There's a bit more unity in the hall anyway around safeguarding issues in terms of actually wanting to move forward, even if the outcomes and where we voted and that would differed uh, from from person to person and group to group. Um, there was some really enthusiastic stuff on the program as well, so uh, there was a chance to unify around some really good uh, good motions and good amendments um, that will actually make a tangible difference to both people's lives in the church and also the communities that we serve as well.
1: I mean you spoke I think in the debate about a states ministry, just sort of tell me a little bit about about that
2: debate. Yeah it was a good debate, it's a very aspirational debate to have because we we're talking about an area where the church has less presence than it does in other parts of the country. So um, if you speak to Church of England people we all sound RP accented for the most part, we've all got this sort of, uh, we're all quite middle class in background broadly speaking um, and it's really exciting to talk about our, our estates in our country where actually there's a tremendous thirst for uh, the good news of Jesus um, and where there's some really important work being done and it's good to do a motion like this where we all acknowledge that actually there needs to be more prioritization towards our estates and some of the poorest communities in our country. I think the stat that really took it away from me was we we heard that two-thirds of um, young people of under 19s in our country live either in the bottom 20 percent in terms of uh, income um, and quality of life uh, in our country or alternatively on one of the bigger states and those are the areas where the church has (laughs) at the moment got less presence.
1: Thank you. I mean, I, I suppose I noted and it was reported that this was a motion which was carried absolutely um, unanimously. And I thought that didn't happen very often, but actually there are other areas where the, the, the votes this time were, were pretty overwhelming. Um, Debbie Buggs, can I just come to you and ask you for um, any observations that you had about
3: Synod and the particular debate within it? I think in the run-up to General Synod, um, the concerns over safeguarding almost um absorbed some of the energy that would have otherwise gone into LLF um, and also the pool of venues and post office um again that was uh that that took some some of the energy but on sunday i thought it was a shame that the LLF um uh debate almost uh, sort of spilled into the family's one and it was a real shame that we couldn't um affirm the value of marriage especially when loving as providing the most stable and permanent environment for bringing up children
1: thank you um helen king did something stand out for you um
3: before we get on to
1: safeguarding living in love and faith
4: what stood out was that final debate on Mark Bennett's private member's motion uh, on people who have been divorced and are remarried uh, or who are married to someone who has previously been to a divorce who then offer fraudination And as in many of the debates, what came across there very strongly were the personal stories of people who had had the most extraordinary experiences um, of of being judged because of a relationship that had happened to the person they were now married to many years ago. I mean this seems, quite an extraordinary thing to focus on um, when when you're looking into whether someone is suitable for ordination. Um, We ended up with an interesting um, merger between conservative and more liberal views so that Mark Bennett was very happy to accept Andrew Atherston's amendment, which rather than looking at the canonical situation, took the focus off the canons because obviously that's where all the sort of tension on LLF is, and instead focused on moving the responsibility for giving permission from the archbishops to the bishop, which seems incredibly sensible because the bishop will know the candidates. Um, and it, it's you know far less aggro than having to go through some long, complex process where the bishop has this in their inbox forever and they don't even know what it's about and they just say yes. The shocking statistic to me to me, and it presumably shocks other people in different ways, is that one in six candidates in the last year's for ordination has either been married to a divorced person or has been through a divorce themselves with former partners still living. So this is this is not just some sort of hypothetical just occasionally happens thing. It's affecting a lot of candidates. And we heard of people who don't even want to go forward with the ordination process because the process of getting this special permission is so unpleasant. And then they have to be interviewed to talk about you. This could be something which you really feel... Actually, I'll just step back from this whole thing now.
1: Another reason why um, some clergy or potential clergy might step back um, is the sort of pension situation. And and there are a lot of personal stories there as well. I don't know whether I can come to John Bavington um, on on that one, Um, a a clergy member of Synod from Leeds. Ian Paul's private motion um, brought out a lot of people talking about the real financial hardship that some clergy um, face. Can Can you speak to that?
5: Yes, I'm, I'm very happy to speak to that. Um, I, I I ought to declare an interest because I'm going to be a recipient of a clergy pension at some point. And I think a lot of people in the, in the debate found themselves uh, needing to say that. Um, one person who spoke is, in fact, already in receipt of his pension. I mean, I thought that was a really interesting example of um, the church having made a decision at a previous time when finances were very tight and uh, there were huge shortfalls, And having said at the the time, I think it was 2011, that they would review that decision when finances improved and when the situation allowed. And so this was, Ian Paul, helpfully bringing us back to a previous decision of a previous uh, synod to say, well, now the situation has improved and the church commissioners are sitting on quite a large sum of money. And yet clergy are often quite demoralised, very tired Uh, the pandemic's had a big impact in a variety of different ways and uh, there's discouragement and parishes being combined and all sorts of pressures on the clergy and this is and actually we have an opportunity now to undo a previous decision and um, improve the terms under which clergy are going to retire and I thought that was a very very helpful thing and again a lot of unity in the room around that. In fact Ruth, if I might say, there were two things that were really to do with improving the lives of clergy that, that were important, I think, at the, at the Synod. And, and the second one was the issue of, of bullying by yeah. lay PCC members and, and codes of conduct for PCCs. And sorry to stray into that, but I thought it was interesting how both of those were about trying to say to the clergy, you really matter.
1: Thank you very much for that. Now, I'd w- I like to turn to um, the issue of uh, safeguarding. Um, this was, um, the, Professor Alexis Jay's report was published last week. It said that the um, church needed, as, as it was re- it had requested her to do to report on how it could move to independent safeguarding. It said it, need, it church needs to do that um, through two bodies, one to administer safeguarding and one to scrutinise it. Now, um, um, Miranda Relfall-Holmes, yeah. um, you're Archdeacon of Liverpool, you're a new member of Archbishop's Council. Um, you weren't on Archbishop's Council, I think, when the um, independent so-called independent safeguarding board of the church of england was disbanded last july which which led to the commissioning of jay's report tell us what you felt about the motion that was being brought to synod and indeed which was passed
6: there were two reports actually that were being brought to synod. um it was the wilkinson report that was about the the disbanding of the isb the jay report had been commissioned previously to that about how we could move to fully independent safeguarding so the motion we brought to synod was a little bit of a placeholder motion, really, because we didn't have the Jay report. It was published very late. It was published later than it had originally been planned and later than it had been had been hoped. Um, and that's fine because Professor Jay needed to have the time she needed to get the report right. But it meant it only came out two or three days before Synod. So the motion that came to Synod had to be written before that, not knowing what Professor Jay was going to say. And so it was a fairly kind of bland placeholder motion saying, we'll set up a response group that will look at these reports and look at actioning them which was fine at the time. I mean, I spoke in the debates in support of an amendment that would have said, look, we, we accept the J report and we need to move straight to producing the legislation, which will will take a long time to put in place these two bodies. We can't do that overnight, sadly. I was disappointed that that didn't get passed because I, I personally thought that it would have been really helpful to have said very clearly as a synod, this is what we want to do and we want to just get on with it. So I'm disappointed and I think it was a shame, but I can see why people felt that having only seen the report a couple of days beforehand, actually that was perhaps a little bit, a little bit. Early. So my hope is that the response group will do what's needed for us to get on with it rather than simply kick this into the long grass. That I, I think that would be unbelievably poor.
1: Um, I mean, Helen King, I think you've got some comments to make about the the makeup of that response group.
4: This is one of these things where synod is weird, right? So Because we have to go through this complicated process of voting on amendments, we ended up with a situation where some amendments that were going to actually ask us to look at the composition of the response group, the number of people on it who are already part of the current system, and therefore the the sort of lack of independence, potentially, of this group, those amendments were never considered because they had to be introduced by a bridging amendment to delete everything else, and then you could insert these. These were to be brought by Martin Sewell and because the bridging amendment would have ended up with just sort of a bit of a sentence and the word and if we then failed to pass those amendments we'd have ended up with just a sentence that ends in and and that clearly wasn't what Simon wanted so it was very difficult to see how else you could have done this in a way that we could have talked about the actual composition of the response group because there is a document issued the day before the J report came out which is on a response group to both J and wilkinson so before Jay's been published. This was already set up. And that group, you know, we were not given the details of that in the Synod papers, but you could find it quite easily um, by, by looking around and people were sharing the document. It was not actually part of what we were considering. And yet it exists. So a lot of Synod was about transparency, clarity, you know, whether we're being told everything. And the trouble is the lack of focus on the existing document that is there but was not shared with us, this really didn't help us have faith in what we're going to do next on safeguarding.
1: I mean, it does seem noteworthy when you look at um, the the response group that the bishop who perhaps enjoys most the confidence of survivors, the deputy lead on safeguarding, um, Julie Connolly, Bishop of Birkenhead, is not named as a member of that group. I mean, that seems um, Quite extraordinary. Um, Miranda, do you want to say something to that?
6: The makeup of that group definitely needs looking at, and I'm hoping, (laughs) I can't be sure, but I I hope that that the the strength of feeling in Synod about the makeup of that group having been kind of all set up in advance and not really being in response to what Jay was asking and not not really taking seriously the depth of of distrust that that Professor Jay really helpfully set, set out, Um, it, It doesn't make sense to have a group of people taking on a report saying we need to change what we're doing who are the group of people, by and large, who have been running <laughs> everything that we've done before. I, I, it's clearly silly. So, I'm hoping that that strength of feeling, even though we couldn't debate and pass those, those particular amendments, but for technical reasons, will have been heard and that that membership will be reviewed. I'll, I'll certainly be asking for that.
1: I mean, your amendment to just, to move forward to um, implementing the Jay report, which was lost. I mean, um, th- there were lots of people who we're sympathetic to the idea that we really do need to get on with this very quickly, but would have felt that that would have fa- failed to address some of the issues that, that Jay still didn't address about exactly where responsibility la- lies for safeguarding and how to make sure that the church remains responsible while, um, while having an independent process.
6: So I think that was a slight misunderstanding of responsibility. Really. I mean, it is very, very clear. There was a very helpful um, speech. I can't remember who it was by, one of our lay members, um, making it, you know, from, from a business perspective, saying, you know, if you outsource your HR function, you're still responsible as an employer legally for doing HR well. The church, clearly, the bishops, all of us are still responsible for safeguarding being done well. But if we don't have the confidence of survivors and victims to be handling the cases, it makes perfect sense for us to use other people to do that but it doesn't doesn't absolve anybody of their responsibility but yeah that perhaps needed to be clearer and hopefully this response group will will give some time to make that that clear because I think there were people certainly some of the bishops seem to be concerned that they'd be seen as somehow absolving themselves of responsibility which to me was, it was very very clear from Professor Jay's report that wasn't the case but I understand that needs to be made clearer I do just want to say, I don't think there was any concern. Um, Certainly, there wasn't a great deal of concern in Professor Jay's report, and she made it really clear in her presentation to Synod that the people who are running our our safeguarding in our diocese and in our parishes are generally doing a really, really good job. This is primarily about how we handle. And historic cases and how we handle really serious cases that come forward now. But the the bedrock of safeguarding in our parishes and our diocese and the people who are who are carrying that out, often volunteers in parishes and some very hard pressed people in dioceses, are by and large doing a really, really good job. And we do want to pay tribute to those and, and not make them feel hurt in this process. And I think that was also partly behind people's desire to just take a little bit more time and make sure they were fully
2: consulted. That's really heartening to hear that we that maybe we'll look at that response group again because I think the general take from survivors is that once again they aren't involved in the process. That once again something sort of happens and appears in the page in a website somewhere, and they find out about it through back channels. Some of the names on that group are concerning because of previous involvement from the Church of England, but also I'm from I'm from Croydon. One of the names there is quite concerning because of a record with Children's Services in Croydon in the past. So some of the membership of the group is concerning for other reasons as well. It. It really is important to understand how strong the feeling is that survivors should be involved in every step of this process, particularly in many ways the parts that aren't independent from the Church of England because trust is so low. There was a little bit of a concern for me that came out of that meeting. There were some comments about the fact that if, you know, if I don't have the national safeguarding team breathing down my neck, I won't be as interested in safeguarding and perhaps we won't be motivated. But I think it's really important that the church sends this really strong message to all the volunteers who are at the front line of what we do, because actually it doesn't get to the bishop until often it's too late and something's happened. That actually safeguarding is something and a culture that we engender within the whole church, not just within the clergy or paid staff.
5: I think I agree entirely with the things that have been said um, there by Miranda and Paul, but I think, I think one of the things that's really important to notice about this is the distinction between the activity of safeguarding or the operation of safeguarding and the oversight uh, of safeguarding. And uh, whether the certainly certainly the oversight, the governance, if you like, the the supervision of our safeguarding needs to be entirely independent, and and that's the second of those things. Um, the question is, to what extent can the first of those things, the operation of safeguarding, be tr- be independent in the sense that safeguarding operates within our parishes and within our dioceses, and is intimately interconnected, and uh, and and I think that's where there was difficulty with these with these two reports or, or or with the the question of whether it was understood in these reports that those two things were two separate things or whether they were unhelpfully intertwined
1: we'll move on in a moment but whether it's possible um paul and john to for observers and survivors watching the debate to come to a conclusion other than that the can is being kicked down the road i don't know what you'd say to that
2: there is a mandate for, for 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 doing something. I don't think the message should be sent that we've that we've just pretended it's all not there and we're, we're kicking it into the future. We did we did pass a motion that said we want we want to do this. Personally, I'd vote for stuff that says get it done quicker. But I appreciate that that might not be t- too easy. And I appreciate why members did want to have a little bit of caution about it. They did just have a report land on their desk a the day before and didn't have a chance to get to know it. But one of the problems with have is you meet every. Three to four months, so it's not like we can do the business next week after we've had a chance to digest and think. We have to wait until July to do something else. It will feel like it's kicked down the road, but I think there is we it, it, we're taking a small step in the right direction.
5: I, I really hope that it isn't being kicked down the road. I don't I don't think that's what's happening. I think I think rather good attention has been given to doing this well. I think I think you can do it quickly or you can do it well, or, or you can do it slowly and badly, perhaps. But um, uh, I really hope not doing something more significant at this Synod means we'll do it better at the next one.
6: I agree. I mean, one of the big learnings from the Wilkinson report was that precisely not having done the work to actually get things right and to define what you meant by independent and so on was one of the things that went wrong and that then caused so much damage and hurt to so many people. So I can understand wanting to, wanting to get it right. The can has not been kicked down the road, I think. And I hope this was never going to be something that was going to be in place tomorrow because anything that we do, if we do what, what, what Professor Jay has recommended, that requires primary legislation. Professor Jay herself said she wanted legislation that, 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 you know, went through parliament, got Royal assent. That is quite a long process. People do need to understand that even with the best will in the world doing it as fast as possible, we're probably entering onto a two or three year process to get that legislation done simply because of the the way in which legislation is, is done in the Church of England um, and the processes that need to be gone through. So that will mean it has a lot of scrutiny and should have the confidence of everyone. But I don't think it's kicking the can down the road for it to take the time that it's going to take to make it really robust.
1: Well, let's move on to the Living in Love and Faith debate. I just wonder if we could have a bit of context and background to remind those who aren't um, wearingly familiar with it. And Susie Leaf, um, journalist um, uh, for Anglican Futures, could you just bring us up to the stage when Martin Snow presented his motion? What what had been the lead up to that? What had been um, what had said had already agreed? Where had things stalled? And um, what, was the, what was the position um, on the day before the debate, as it were?
7: Uh, as somebody observing, I think that where have we got to, we've got uh, Bishop uh, Martin Snow laid out quite well in his opening speech. We are in a position where to move forward requires, um, legally will require a two thirds majority vote um, in order to bring in standalone services on a permanent basis. And that two-thirds majority isn't there in Synod. And so at the same time, there is a desire to bring in these standalone services. And so I think I think it was Paul who said earlier, or somebody said earlier, that we're sort of moving towards a place where some kind of settlement is going to be needed need to be found in order that everyone can move forward. And it was that which the bishop had put forward um, 10 commitments, um, not commandments, as somebody um, accidentally spoke about them, the 10 commitments um, that were a kind of way of working, a way that maybe we can move forward. Uh, there was a general feeling I felt um, from the different speeches, and I think um, Miranda can speak about this, uh, that on both sides of the debate, uh, there were concerns about those commitments. There were concerns about some of the things in the paper. And so, Um, I think it's a good opportunity to air some of the issues in a slightly less controversial um, demanding of a decision right now kind of way. So we're at this point where we've got a desire for standalone services um, and a blocking minority um, in the the Synod, um, which could stop that going forward at the moment.
1: Um, unless some kind of um, settlement is That's reached, right. I mean, just a little bit more um, context. I mean, Martin Snow uh, brought um, the motion asking for approval for these um, these vague commitments, which you know we're not sure if these are quite the commitments we but we want. But maybe we can commit to these vague commitments anyway. Um, but he brought this motion in his own name, not in the name of the House of Bishops. His co-lead, um, Helen Ann Hartley, Bishop of Newcastle, had resigned as co-lead a, a month earlier because of the process of appointing a theological advisor to the House of Bishops, and it would appear that nobody could be found to take her place. So, um, Martin Snow, I didn't, he didn't exactly cut a, a lonely figure, um, and um, I think a lot of people would say he, he did a really good job. Um, but he, he he was there on his own seeking um thinod to sort of come with him. And and Miranda um they didn't vote on his motion um, because you uh, said let's let's move on.
6: Yeah, I think the way you you, you described what was happening there was quite quite helpful in explaining why. It, it it seemed to me we weren't really being asked to vote on anything in particular. The motion wasn't really a kind of, are we doing this or not motion. We'd already had those motions. And of course, what Synod can't do under its standing orders is go back and reverse previous decisions that have happened in the last year. So we'd voted to move on and, and have um, same-sex blessings in February. We'd confirmed that in November. This paper as you say it wasn't really about that. It was about are we going to do this in this kind of way? Um, I was very unhappy with the idea, as it turns out, with lots of people from all sides of the debate, with the idea of signing up to a set of commitments that we were told probably weren't the actual commitments, they were just drafts, but we weren't ever going to have the dis- the opportunity to discuss or agree what commitments we were willing to sign up to. So that seemed a bit silly. And it seemed to me that. The motion was really an excuse to have a debate and have people say their their piece and and feel where we were and get a sense of where the synod was. It wasn't a motion that needed a vote and a vote wouldn't be helpful. So it made sense to move on. And that that clearly express the mind of Synod quite
1: well. I'd just like to go to Andrew Goddard, if I may, because I'm, I'm very glad to see that he's joined us. He's um, a member of the Church of England Evangelical Council. Uh, not a member of Synod, but chap into it, I understand. Um, That's right. And, um, I mean, one of the things that happened in Synod, that, that there was an amendment um, to, um, to agree that some sort of settlement should be found, and that was rejected. And I just wonder whether you felt that it was... Um, Well, it was timely at this time to reject that amendment or whether you felt that that was just a delaying tactic by Synod generally.
8: I would have preferred for the amendment to to pass at this stage, but I understand that that's where lots of people in Synod are not there and it was testing the mind of Synod as it stands at the moment. Um, It's been clear from the information we've now been given that the the bishops in the course of the last year have been on a journey working out to what extent um, they are willing to discuss and uh, what sort of patterns of Um, provision they might um, consider. Um, I suspect Synod is on a similar journey. Um, My sense here, there was a recognition, as has been said, that we are stuck um, where we are at the moment, Uh, And we're stuck on all three of the things that have been um, uh, the focus for the for the last year. We're stuck on the prayers because we don't have standalone services. Though a year ago, everyone thought they were coming, and so we're stuck on that. And there are legal problems with with moving to standalone and voting problems for the two thirds. Uh, We're stuck um, on the guidance, um, and that's now becoming clear with part of the greater transparency. The bishops are realising if we're not changing doctrine, um, it's difficult to make some of the changes that some people want in relation to the guidance. Um, And we are still as that vote showed stuck on um, the extent to which uh, people are happy to look at some form of structural provision. Um, and I think all of those need to go um, together. The Bishop of Guildford um, spoke about maybe proportionate um, provision rather than minimal provision being something that recognises that, that the further one moves from our current position in relation to liturgy and in relation to the pastoral guidance, um, the further one will probably have to go in terms of provision. Because the vote showed that although there was a majority uh, against this at this time there's a very large minority who are very concerned uh, about the implications of where we are already at alone where we might be going
1: it's interesting how this w- was framed in various articles i read i mean one article said um that you know the liberals and the conservatives for want of better terms sort of united to sort of um uh move on to the next business and the, there were all sorts of theories about why that might be like Getting ducks in a row, Um, and and, and, uh, and another article said, um, you know, well, the the disagreement is so profound um, that they couldn't even sort of agree on a sort of a a basic sort of motion about um, uniting behind uh, behind the next bit of the process. Um, Helen King, it's very
4: very difficult, isn't it, to see what's going on here. I mean, basically, the, the motion was so bland and didn't actually do anything, there seemed very little point being being there to discuss it. And as you said, it seems more like an excuse just to have yet another debate and try out yet another load of assorted possibilities for amendments, which which didn't get anywhere. The fact that we all agreed that we'd rather go for note the work that's been done since we last met rather than welcome, I think is probably significant because nobody welcomes it. I think what's significant is the way that there are little suggestions coming as to what we might do next. So that there might be some sort of shared present, shared conversations type process, like in 2015, with actually bringing people of different views into the same room, not just for a couple of hours, but maybe residentially so that we can actually talk this through sensibly.
1: Is that not what shared well, conversations Not in that sort of way. Of that? I mean, not
4: the residential thing. That hasn't happened since 2015, 2017 with shared conversations. I mean, the people who produced the LLF resources, yes, we've all been in the same room, but actually we get on quite well. I mean, I was on, in that with, with Andrew, and you sort of respect someone when you've been in a group with them and you've talked with them over, over months, but there aren't months because the commitment is to bring something to July. Now, the problem with that is that phrase, settlement or pastoral provision or whatever. So what does that mean? And that's what we haven't really got any clarity on at the moment. So when people say it, it all sounds terribly nice, pastoral provision just helping you to stay in communion with me. Are we even in communion to start with? I mean, who is going to receive communion from whom? Are people happy to receive communion from bishops who support the prayers of love and faith if they personally don't? And if not, it doesn't really matter what we do. This is going nowhere. But then if you call it pastoral provision, if you call it settlement, that sounds very fixed. How does that work with your average parish, where some people are in favour of the prayers of love and faith, some people aren't? And as one speaker said in the debate, you know, many people just haven't even wanted to consider it. It's just not relevant. It's not something you find interesting. How do you suddenly say to people, OK, you go into this bit of the Church of England and you can go into that bit of the Church of England? It doesn't work for parishes. There's something unreal on the ground, and it doesn't help, and I'm sorry, Andrew, doesn't help that the CEEC has published this list of of really radical changes. I mean, one that particularly upsets me is the idea of separate direct DDOs, diocesan directors of ordinance in each diocese, to consider the orthodox, traditional, whatever you call it, candidates, and the liberal, inclusive, whatever you call it, candidates. That seems to me extremely insulting to people who've worked with those with a wide range of views and try to do the best for them over the years. We don't need this level of separation, in my view.
1: Um, I'll come back to Andrew in a moment, but I'd like to go to Debbie next. And then I, I think I'd like to hear from John Bavington before I go back to Andrew. Um, Debbie.
3: I think Helen has got a point that um, it's a shame if we have to have separate DDOs. But really, I think that reflects the balance of power. And I'm hearing stories of... Um, pretty shoddy treatment by bishops um, with ordinance and people looking for title posts, people who've had their curacies not able to move on, and even sort of um, renewing uh, bishops' mission orders. Um, And so I think we've got to accept that there's a big imbalance of power between your kind of young, potentially uh, not well-versed ordinand, and a bishop who's got tremendous power. So I would like to see um, in the next few weeks almost a opt-in arrangement where anyone, both um, progressive or traditionalist, who feels that they're not having a fair deal, being able to opt into something um, on their side, no questions asked, no kind of barrier of some sort of ombudsman, and then things can move on in this period of uncertainty because I think it's our ordinance really who are paying the price. Mm-hmm. But also I think um, in November, the Bishop of Oxford was almost cruel in raising expectations on standalone services. So he put in an amendment. It was passed with a small, small percentage of a sort of 50, so a kind of 51, 52% majority. He knew that wasn't enough to do the changing doctrine, but now we've almost got this impression Synod has voted for this. Well, yes. Well, no, it hasn't really, because there's still this blocking majority of over a third. And so I heard on the, so the kind of speeches were Synod has voted for it, we need to get it done. Well, sorry, no, it hasn't voted for it.
1: Um, right. Uh, well, I've got Helen King on, on the chat to. saying Synod has voted. Um, well, not. not.
3: That means that I think the the progressives are saying, look, we've, we've there's a 51 percent majority. You blocking minority need to get back in your boxes and let this go forward. Right, OK, let's let, let, let,
1: That's let not Helen, happen. Right. Helen, a very quick response. I'm going to go to John, then I'm going to go to Miranda.
4: You may not like the majorities, but it has. Um, and if you look at the majority against that structural differentiation um, amendment, that is a lot more than
1: than what you're talking about. Thank you, um, John. John Bavington, I just wonder whether we, we talked, heard a little bit about you know what parishes might be making of all this, and you know wh- how engaged they are. Um, I mean, Ed Shaw was talking to me yesterday, lay minister from. Bristol, who says, you know, I'm 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 represented on people think on Synod I'm some sort of, you know, raving separatist, but actually it's my church who is saying, you know, why do we stay? So I'm just wondering how things look from the parish that you serve on this issue?
5: It's a really good question. And I think part of um part of the issue we have going on here is an issue of trust. Um and uh it was good that at, at this uh there was an amendment passed that we we talked about a greater commitment to openness and tr- to openness and transparency
1: who would the transparency be from from everybody
5: well, I, I, yeah i think from everybody really but in the house of bishops there's there's you know there's a lot of suspicion around certainly on on i'm i'm a traditional evangelical who, who believes the church has uh largely been right in its teaching on this in the past um and um but i i would say that um uh, there's there's a lot of suspicion on on that side of the discussion if you like that there's legal advice going around in the House of Bishops that hasn't that that people haven't they haven't been very open right. and 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 right. transparent about. Right. Um, In in terms of our parish, I, I, you know, as a PCC and in large numbers among the leadership, very committedly in favour of retaining the traditional doctrine and traditional practices of the Church of England. But even in a parish like mine that's very committedly evangelical, there are some people who feel that actually, um, you know, there ought to be blessings for same-sex couples and so on. And I think that, therefore, if that can happen in my parish, that's probably true in in almost every parish in the country that that division occurs within each parish i have in my parish a a significant number of people from a global majority heritage uh, and um you know services held in in other languages and it's a very multicultural parish and some of those have come to me to say very specific not only those White British people, too, have come to me to say we, if the Church of England were to change its doctrine, its formal doctrine, we would leave the Church of England. Not- uh, they they have said they're not going to change the doctrine. The question, the question, I suppose, occurs, Rosie, as to whether they can actually achieve the things they want to achieve without changing the doctrine and you, just because you say something doesn't mean it isn't a reality it, you know it doesn't alter reality mm-hmm. and so um i think there is there is enormous um un, there's an incredibly unsettled feeling around mm-hmm. and a real real dismay at um, what people see as a an abandonment of a clear scriptural injunction, the Lord says this. We had a a very strange, if I might just say, we had a very strange interjection in one of the debates where somebody talked about original sin at General Synod as an original sin as being the exclusion of other people. And yet in the Garden of Eden, there were no other people, there were just Adam and Eve. And the original sin was actually disobedience to what the Lord has said. And so um, I think uh, I think that's the the, the the deeper question behind all of this whole thing is how how are we going to read scripture? How do we read scripture? What do we think it, it it's about? What does it mean? And um, yeah, I'll I'll stop talking at that point. But I think there's a deep fault line in the Church of England over that question.
1: Somebody's just put in the chat box that a 66% majority is needed for any change. So, um, in the lifetime of this synod, that's not going to be achievable. And one wonders why a, a, a motion to move to other business doesn't extend until, well, the next uh, number of years. Um, Miranda.
6: Yeah, and to come on to this discussion about structural provision, I think there's a there was a really general sense in the debate. and I think it's partly what contributed to the helpful change of tone, that of course some sort of provision, some sort of pastoral provision, a conscience clause, that kind of thing, is going to be needed. We're Everybody I think understands that they're not going to change other people's minds on this. You know, we, we The whole living in love and faith process over the last seven years hasn't been predicated on trying to persuade one side or the other to change their minds. It's been predicated on learning to live together with our difference. Um, the difficulty we've got, is that the Church of England? Kind of in itself, what the Church of England is—one of the things that distinguishes it from a lot of other denominations—is um, that it's never been a confessional church. It's based on the parish and on being the church for everybody who lives in that parish, whatever their views. I mean, that—that's been the case ever since the, the 16th century when it was created in in a situation of appalling religious conflict and violence. And so it's been predicated on being the church for those in that parish, whatever their views, to go along to, and 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 being united in in practice um, rather than over doctrinal issues, um, you know, beyond beyond the creeds and so on. So it's to, to the idea of trying to create structural separation where people divided along to use a kind of technical historical term confessional lines and said if you believe these things then you go into this structure and if you believe these things you go into that structure that is a really fundamental change in what the church of england is it's an entire rewrite of the whole existence and identity of the church of england now we might want to have that debate but i don't think we should have that debate as a kind of secondary how do we get this through debate i think it deserves a, a massive debate on its own. it's a it's a huge separate thing. And it was very powerful. There were a few very powerful speeches in the in the relatively short debate we had. but the one that really struck me was by Jodie Stout talking about her congregation, as others have said, having people of all views in it, certainly as as an archdeacon now, I've got a lot of congregations, I think pretty, pretty much every congregation in my archdeaconry has people in it. It's, of different views, whether those con- whether the clergy or the the church itself would identify as being primarily a conservative church or primarily a liberal church, um, and the idea of asking those congregations to pick a side and telling everyone on the other side to leave and go somewhere else is just horrific. Okay. It would totally rewrite the Church of England. So I think I think the idea of structural separation is off the table. I think that's very very clear after repeated debates. The question is, what can we do? that will enable people to be willing to walk together. But did you say it's off the table or on the table? I think it's pretty good. We've had several, I mean, obviously it's not legally or structurally off the table, but we've had several um, votes on amendments of this now. Helen's referenced um, what the, the, the voting on one of them. We had several votes similarly through the women bishops debates. I was on General Synod, you know, over the last 15, 20 years when we were discussing women bishops. Again, lots and lots of proposals for a third province or for some sort of structural separation, which were repeatedly rejected.
1: Okay, let me go to Andrew to respond to that and then I'll come to Susie.
8: As has been said, we've had a number of amendments. We have not had any major um, clear theological legal work um, that has been done yet, I understand that Faith and Order may be doing some work around some of those ecclesiological questions. Um, The Faith and Order group has in the past acknowledged that there are are different levels of disagreement that we have, um, and they set out three. Two of those three were ones that they recognised did have significant implications for the unity and the structures of the church. Um, and I think people are aware because of us being so stuck now on this that this does seem to fall into at least um, um, the second category, um, the sort of middle category, um, and many people believe it falls into the first category, Um, and we need then to work out what that means for how we can uh, have structures that will enable us to Um, maintain the highest degree of communion possible. And while I agree with Miranda in one sense about not being a confessional church, uh, we do do have a clear statement of what our doctrine is and where it is to be found in historic formularies, and part of the issue here um, is that um, it appears that um, for many people some of the proposals are not consistent with that, Um, and then the question becomes, well, how do we deal with that sort of level uh, of, um, of of disagreement, and were figures put in the, in the chat, I think by Helen said only forty three percent 429 percent were in favour. And again, I would say you know that's that's an amendment to to an emotion. It's not it's not a, a focused debate with a proper resourcing. Okay. Um, and if, if forty two or forty three percent are so unhappy, a significant portion that they cannot stay without something, um, that's quite a significant problem. Um, and that it's also to the DDO question. If um, if DDOS are going to be required. Um, to um, put forward for ministry, people who they in conscience believe, um, because they follow the current guidelines, it wouldn't be right for them to be in ministry, then those questions will arise in a way they haven't done before without impugning the integrity of DDOs. It's a matter of how deep conscientious convictions that are incompatible can be held together in the same church in relation to questions of ministry.
1: Thank you. Um, Susie, briefly, and then I want to come to Paul and then uh, ask a, a sort of technical question of Miranda, given that she's on Archbishop's Council and might even know the answer.
7: It's very easy, isn't it, for us to dive down into the weeds and to get um, confused by different votes and all the rest of it. I think what's becoming clear as you're watching what's happening is that we've moved from a question of whether or not um, same-sex blessings are a good thing or a bad thing to actually the divide really being about whether this is something we can agree to disagree with within the, the way things are set up at the moment. Or whether this is uh, uh, an issue, um, uh, so the agree to disagree role would be to say this is adiaphora. That might—that's a phrase that people might hear. Define
1: it for me, adiaphora. Um, so it's a matter—it's a matter indifferent. It's a
7: matter that Christians can disagree with quite happily. Um, you know, they can go down as far as you know the color of the chairs in the church. It, okay. it, it is—it's something we can live with or is this something which is so fundamental that we cannot agree to disagree and I think one of the really strangest moments in the synodical debate was the the Um, the request for an amendment that acknowledged the existence of those who agreed or disagreed Um, and there were lots of people there embodying that view and yet Synod voted to say no, we won't acknowledge um, that there are are people in Synod who cannot agree to disagree and I think that's probably where we're going to see the need for this shuttle diplomacy that the Bishop of Leicester has spoken about.
1: Um, Briefly, Paul?
2: So I just wanted to uh, talk about the the nature of synods, quite often is that the people on it have been so often elected, I think, increasingly in this compendium on a platform of inclusivity or conservative values. And the trouble with that is it probably doesn't represent our parishes all that well. In South London, there's loads of parishes, lots of different sort of traditions nearby. And there are lots and lots of stories of churches that just don't engage with this at all, of people with mixed views who get along really well, then it doesn't really affect the way they they, uh, tell the gospel out to their communities. There are churches like, I know an HDB church in South London, HTB HDB plant, where there's lots and lots of people who are really sad about the stance taken by their leadership and are wondering whether they should leave the church. But actually, I love my home group. I love all the stuff that we do that's really good. So it, it does sit really uncomfortably with me that we take the figures from Synod as a representative of what people are thinking in parishes. I'd also like to suggest, just while I'm here, that I think Jody's Jodie's speech into what her congregation is like is really important. And I think actually... One of the things, if we're going to have shared residential conversations, I think including inclusive evangelicals who maybe have a lot of sympathy with uh, some of the ecclesiology of their more conservative brothers and sisters, but also want the inclusivity that some of the uh, affirming Catholic, Anglo-Catholics do, I think that'd be a really good group to include in those discussions because they can see a little bit more of both sides of the argument.
1: Thank you. Now I'm going to um be very disciplined here and um not um uh, allow a comment on anything else except Miranda. How does Martin Snow take this forward? Um what happens now? We I'm assuming that um all the bishops of the, the right persuasion were approached to co chair with him and
6: I have no secret it's you've so no secrets have, on that on so, knowledge here, but I think what he what he said, I think, um, is that he's hoping to put together a panel um of people probably beyond just the bishops which i think would be helpful i think it would help address some of the concerns that this is some sort of something that's being stitched up (laughs) inside the house of bishops perhaps um a wider panel to help to help take this work forward and i think we just need to wait and see over the next couple of days and probably weeks but i wouldn't have thought much longer than that if they're going to bring something back for july they're going to have to to crack on
1: and what do you anticipate they'll bring back in july have you any idea Is it going to just be another, you know...
6: Honestly, I suspect it will be a bit more of another what-about-this-way-forward-testing-the-mind-of-Synod stuff, although we've been promised or told or assured um, that there would be concrete proposals. I, I, I have to say, whilst I would love to be voting on actually getting on and doing this in July after having what, 14 years of this so far, Um, I suspect that realistically we're not going to be able to get really fully fleshed out proposals by July. So I suspect it'll be more of a kind of here we are with some concrete commitments and more of a sense of this is the kind of shape of what we're looking at.
1: Thank you. Well, we will leave it there. We will return to it, I am sure. Um, The debate continues in the chat. Thank you very much, all of you for joining us. And uh, we hope that you'll join us on another Zoom. Um, Bye for now.
0: The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk, where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have, or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter, and it's hugely appreciated.